This is an ABC podcast. Given the clashes between police and protesters in the United States over this past week, we thought it was timely to revisit this Future Tense program from last year. Men in Kevlar vests and helmets, camouflage, carrying automatic rifles, moving in tactical armoured vehicles. These aren't American troops on the battlefield, but police in Ferguson. One observer says he thought he saw police in an MRAP. It's part of what the Now, MRAP, for those unfamiliar with that abbreviation, stands for a vehicle that is mine-resistant and ambush-protected. We're talking about armoured personnel carriers, basically one step down from a tank. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. Every day, across America, military-style raids are taking place. Local police dressed like soldiers break down doors in the hunt for drugs. From equipment to tactics to uniforms to training, policing in the United States is slowly and surely becoming militarised. And it's happening in other Western countries too. John Sutton is a lawyer and former commissioned officer in the ADF, the Australian Defence Force. Militarisation of the police force is a relatively new phenomenon. Interestingly, it was in 1997 in America when the then President Bill Clinton signed into law a particular act which actually provided for the military to basically give or sell surplus armaments and weapons to the various state police forces. It's certainly something which has been advancing very slowly and with very little oversight, both from an academic point of view, from a parliamentary point of view, and also from just a public discourse point of view as well. It's only now that we're starting to actually see more and more of this discussion taking place in public forums, and we're starting to stop and question, is this a good thing, both for the police force and also for the uh, civilian populations within the states that the police forces are there to protect and serve? And there's a possibility, says John Sutton, that, at least in the Australian context, the militarisation of police could eventually be declared unconstitutional. We'll hear his reasoning for that suggestion a little later. But first, the former Clinton administration's decision to set up a specific program to allow American policing agencies to buy military-grade equipment. Criminal justice researcher Jeremiah Mostella says that's seen around $6 billion worth of equipment transferred from the US Department of Defence to more than 8,600 law enforcement agencies right across the US. So this equipment can be things such as night vision goggles, military aircraft, armoured vehicles, machine guns, grenade launchers, but it also includes things like field packs, canteens, sleeping bags, ponchos. And this issue really rose to public consciousness after massive protests occurred in Ferguson, Missouri, after the shooting of Michael Brown. After those protests, pictures arose in the media that revealed that police were going about in that local community in full military camo, body armor, and gas masks, carrying military-style M4 weapons with six extra magazines of bullets, and riding on an armored truck. So these images just really displayed to the country that this issue has really reached a precipice. And we have reached a point in America where a lot of police departments 
have become very akin to a military force in their local community. And what's the justification for police officers having things like grenade launchers? So usually they will give about three justifications if you talk to law enforcement. The rise of gangs and cartels, the use of more sophisticated and deadly weapons by criminals, and a higher number of violent crimes within local communities. So looking at the research, looking at the data that we actually have on all three of these topics, it is true that both gang membership and gang activity has increased across the United States. But those other two justifications sadly just aren't true based on the data. We see that the FBI, which does a national report on crime every single year, it has shown that homicides, robberies, aggravated assaults, and all types of violent crime have declined significantly since the 1980s, and that about 80% of homicides in the United States involve a simple handgun or a non-firearm weapon other than explosives. And a study from 2017 actually found that only 2% of the guns used in crime were assault weapons. So this shows that, yes, one of the three justifications that are given is true. There is an increase in gang membership and activity, but the other two justifications just sadly are not true and do not justify this militarization of police. Well, if you're talking about police militarization, I guess it comes back to what we call the warrior cop phenomenon. And what we're talking about there is where there's, a, I guess, a melding of military hardware into policing services. Criminologist and former detective inspector Terry Goldsworthy. We need to be careful where we're seeing an escalation of concerns over various crime behaviours, et cetera, and how we respond to them. So, you know, often uh, we hear the term moral panic, and what we're talking about when we say moral panic is that there's a, a crime occurrence happens, there's a fixation on it by the media or the state, et cetera, and then we get a response to that that's out of proportion to the actual threat. So I would like to make sure or hope that, you know, our responses to criminal threats or to criminal behaviours is appropriate and proportionate and we're not going to fall into the trap of, you know, engaging in a moral panic where we're putting in place responses that aren't necessary and aren't appropriate. Now, the US situation is unique in that the supply of military equipment to police is being promoted and encouraged by the federal government. The Obama administration tried to limit the 1033 program, as it's called, but Donald Trump's administration has expanded it. Through the 1033 program, local law enforcement agencies, they receive this equipment for free. They do not have to pay for the equipment. They do have to pay for the transportation, maintenance, insurance and any cost to convert that equipment to law enforcement use. So initially, whenever they may be seeking this equipment, it may seem very appealing to them because the equipment is free. Whenever you add in all those additional costs to keep that equipment over the long term, sadly, it just becomes too expensive for many jurisdictions to justify retaining the equipment if it's not used on a frequent basis. Another requirement of the program is that the property that is acquired actually has to be used within one year or the department must return it to the Department of Defense. So these two elements really combine to create an incentive for agencies to utilize this equipment in circumstances where it may not even be appropriate or reasonably necessary for them to use that equipment just to justify its retention. This also creates an incentive to shift resources away from crime-solving to other things that may actually reap financial benefits, such as civil asset forfeiture or the seizure of property 
from low-level drug possession crimes that can result in some type of monetary funds that can be used to continue to maintain this equipment. One additional point I would make is that the way in which the local police departments are receiving this equipment is they receive it directly through state coordinators in their state, which are, are run by the federal government. So what this actually does is this allows the money and the property to flow around appropriate oversight by state lawmakers and local city officials and circumvents the principles of federalism that we hold so dear in the United States, as well as proper oversight of law enforcement. So I think one thing that could definitely improve this is by requiring that councils or local municipal governments actually have to approve this whenever a local police department wants to receive the equipment, rather than being cut out of the process entirely. In other Western countries, that sort of official militarisation program doesn't exist. But in Australia, as in the UK and Canada, our police are increasingly keen to follow the broader American example. What we've seen in Australia is there's been a, a move or a push by police unions and police services have uh, moved in this direction where we're issuing military-style rifles uh, to frontline police and Victoria and Queensland are two of the states who have done that. So I think there's two main issues you need to look at when that's happening and that is to justify those kind of moves. You need to establish that there's a credible threat and then uh, you also have to identify a deficiency in the capabilities of the police to respond to that threat. So, you know, now, my concerns are that perhaps we haven't seen that case being made and we sometimes hear, you know, police unions going, we want to be in front of the game, we want to be, you know, preparing or future-proofing, if you want to put it that way. But, you know, sometimes when you're future-proofing, you've got to look at the current trends. And if you look at the current trends of terrorist attacks in Australia, we haven't seen any great usage of military-style hardware, rifles, etc., where the police have been outgunned. That simply hasn't occurred. I mean, if they had good intelligence that showed that people were gaining access to these kind of weapons and that they faced this threat and it was a credible threat, there may be some argument for that. But I've seen no commentary from the commissioner or evidence from the unions, etc., to indicate that criminal elements or terrorist elements, etc., are arming themselves with, you know, these type of uh, high-grade weapons. In fact, you know, most of the studies that look at terrorist attacks in the Western democracies, etc., indicate that there's a move towards low-tech weapons because they're much harder for police to uh, detect, etc., the use of, uh, you know, vehicles, use of blunt instruments, use of bladed instruments. You can use everyday household items to do them. So when you're planning the attack, it's low tech, it's not going to come up on the radar of law enforcement, etc., as compared to someone who's trying to uh, import, you know, M16 style weaponry. Looking ahead, if this trend continues, what are the implications? Well, unfortunately, I think, you know, we'll see perhaps the application of technologies and hardware that realistically isn't suited to policing operations. You know, we're seeing the use of drones now, etc. So a lot of technologies that come out of military applications are being moved across for policing operations. And there is, you know, some benefit to those, but we just need to make sure that where we're going to use that uh, and have a convergence of militarised hardware and techniques into policing operational practices, we need to make sure that there's proper governance and accountability in the use of those technologies, and we need to ensure that there's a justification for the use of those technologies. Do you see any signs that senior police, not just here in Australia but elsewhere, are aware of this issue or concerned about this issue? 
Well, it was interesting with Victoria when they moved toward getting some uh, military-style rifles, military-grade rifles. The Chief Commissioner ruled out such a move, yet within 12 months had reversed his decision. And there's no clear evidence given as to why he had changed his uh, mind on that, you know, what instances of evidence drove his attitudinal change. So... I guess if you're going to look at these things and there's positions put up that we don't want to alienate the community, we want to be embedded with the community, we're part of the community as police officers, you need to be very careful about the image you're portraying. Terry Goldsworthy, a criminologist from Bond University in Queensland. Lawyer John Sutton is also concerned about an increasing police focus on the need to arm up in expectation of potential future terrorist threats. He's written about what he calls a convergence between the military and the police, and he believes if it continues unchecked, it could have a significant impact on the effectiveness of future policing, particularly where community trust is concerned. One of the characterising features of the beginning of the 21st century in Australia and also among English-speaking democracies is this phenomenon of the military becoming increasingly involved in areas traditionally considered the responsibility of police, while elements of the police are simultaneously becoming more militaristic. The states, in a response to terrorist incidents, have slowly and progressively been creating units within their police force which are appearing more and more like a military unit. Indeed, those units are trained by the ADF, Australian Defence Force. They are armed with weapon systems very similar to what the ADF use. And in some instances, there are a lot of tactics, techniques and procedures which are given to those police units from the ADF. In every state now, we have each state police force has at least one of these special operation groups. Some states have more than one. And a lot of these special operation groups are held up and elevated within the police force as something to aspire to. So it's a avenue for a particular group of minded police officers to want to pursue this as a career option. And there's no legal barrier or even public debate occurring as to whether this particular course of action is desirable both for the police force, which is an important discussion, and also for the general public. So it's not a matter of what's in it for them, it's just a matter of terrorism law is situated in the criminal sphere, the police deal with criminals in order to deal with this particular subset of criminals known as terrorists. We need to have these particular skill sets. We need to have these particular weapons, these tactics, techniques and procedures. Danger in the dark, an adrenaline-charged moment of truth. A snapshot of what any police officer may face on night patrol. This is the training aimed at overcoming controversy after Queensland police shot and killed four Typically a close ideological and operational alliance between police force and the military has always been associated with repressive regimes. Now, I'm certainly not suggesting that's where we're heading to in Australia. Australia has a very strong democracy and very robust civic-mindedness amongst its population. But nevertheless, these developments are certainly concerning. The concern is when you start inculcating a culture which is militaristic into police forces, whether that particular culture reverts from being a culture of protecting and serving the population, so investigating crime, making arrests, 
these sorts of activities to being put onto a footing which is more aggressive. For example, the role of the infantry is to seek out and close with the enemy and kill or capture him, to take and hold ground, repel attack by day or night, regardless of season, weather or terrain. That particular attitude that the Defence Force has toward the enemy is very handy in a conventional warfare situation. However, when that particular cultural attitude starts becoming inculcated into your police force, obvious concerns can occur and it can profoundly alter the way the police force sees itself and the way it interacts with the civilian population that its role is to protect and keep the peace of, particularly when those cultural features percolate down to the general duties police officer. And have we already started to see a change in attitude? In August last year, there was a paper released by an associate professor at the Princeton School of Political Science, and the paper concerned this very issue. Two of the key findings that it made was, firstly, there doesn't appear to be any benefit to having these militarised units within the police force in terms of reducing violent crime or officer protection. And secondly, the civilian population, when it sees these units on television or just operating in the general population undertaking a particular activity, it reduces the public's perception of the police force. Those two findings put together, the central conclusion of the paper was that having militarised units within the police force, on average, is a net loss as opposed to net benefits. As I mentioned earlier, John Sutton believes there could be legal arguments ahead when it comes to the military-style special operations units expanding within Australian state police departments. He says that while the Australian Constitution doesn't explicitly spell out what constitutes a defence force, it is clear under Section 114 that state governments aren't allowed to form their own militias or paramilitary forces. When you consider the special operations groups that are in each state and what they look like when they're undertaking their particular job, there's certainly an argument that they look like a military force. We don't see them doing patrols on the streets. We don't see them doing RBTs or making arrests or investigating crimes. When we do see them in operation, it's generally highly rehearsed. They have weapons and armaments and their appearance resembles that of the ADF, the Defence Force, and they perform highly synchronised and orchestrated activities, which again is more analogous to what the ADF looks like. So there may be an argument that particular elements of the police force are becoming more like a military force and accordingly may be in breach of certain provisions within the constitution. In other words, what looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, well, you know the rest. I'm Anthony Fennell and this is Future Tense on RN, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. My handle on Twitter is at Anthony J Fennell if you want to send us a comment or even a story idea. From a personal perspective, I first became aware of how our police are being militarised when several officers recently visited the ABC on a courtesy call. They look like an American-style SWAT team in baseball caps and dark blue fatigues, almost black in colour. And they were kitted up in bulletproof vests, weighed down with all manner of equipment, handguns, tasers, handcuffs, etc. 
I was surprised to find out that they weren't a special weapons and tactics team, just ordinary, everyday police officers. Patrick Quill is the Chief of Police for the town of Combs in Texas, and he's studied and written about the increasingly militaristic style of police uniforms and what impact that has on public perception. Besides the officer's demeanour, the uniform is probably one of the most important pieces of equipment the officer has. The uniform really affects how a person perceives an officer, and in turn that will create an impression for the entire department. If someone sees an officer dressed in a military-styled uniform, it can create an impression that the officer is untrustworthy or dishonest or aggressive. So to me and in my experience, the uniform is what has really shaped the perception of the department and the individual officers. Now, not every police service, of course, has moved towards more military-style uniforms. But right across the Western world, there has been a a trend that way, an overall trend that way. Why do you think that is? Why have we moved in that direction? As far as other Western countries, I can't really speak, but I know that for the United States, I noticed the increased militarization of the police uniform right around 9-11-2001, which was when America was attacked. And that's because the police found themselves conducting more militarized type duties in regards to anti-terrorism. So the introduction of the military uniform and tactics really, to me, began entering police work at that point until it finally got down to the ordinary patrol officer that works amongst the general public. And importantly, you say their tactics as well. So this is not just about the, the physical appearance. Right. It includes changes in police tactics too. That's how I perceive it. It's not that that it's been a deliberate push in that direction. It's just based on, on circumstances within the country that causes this to occur. In terms of public perceptions of police officers and their work, I know there's been uh, quite a bit of research done on the colour that is used for uniforms. What can you tell us about that? Yes, there's been a number of studies that have looked at that. One of them that I really looked at was a 2005 study by Richard Johnson of the University of Cincinnati. He conducted an experiment to determine if uniforms promote a negative impression and make it more difficult for officers to overcome citizen anxieties. What Johnson found was that the black-on-black uniform did create perceptions that police officers were cold or forceful, unfriendly, aggressive, and where the navy blue uniforms produce perceptions of good and honesty, passiveness and friendliness. There's other empirical studies out there that look at the same thing. In that same study that Johnson conducted, he found that even just the slightest change to the color scheme made a difference in the perception of the officer. So then what is the ideal color for a police uniform if you want to project authority but not be seen to be intimidating? These Studies that I've looked at all recommend the either navy blue over navy blue uniform or the light blue over navy blue uniform. Those are the two color schemes that appear to produce the most trustworthiness and give an appearance of strength and professionalism while at the same time being approachable. And here's an interesting fact. 
The reason why police in English-speaking democracies traditionally wore navy blue was not accidental. That colour was originally chosen for a very good reason. Patrick Quill again. The first police uniform was introduced by the London Metropolitan Police, and it was introduced as a navy blue uniform because the British military of the day wore red. And they wanted to produce a uniform that was clearly and distinctly separate from the military to identify them as the local police. And they're having the authority over local citizens where the British military did not have that authority to police its citizens. Now, we've talked about more militaristic style uniforms and public perception. But what do those uniforms do to police officers themselves? Is there an issue around recruitment, say? I mean, does it does it attract certain types of people if you have a more militaristic style? Is there a risk in that kind of way? I did not directly look at that, but in my personal opinion, I'd say, yes, it does affect the type of person that would be attracted to the police work. Whereas if you have the traditional uniform, you're looking for the more service-oriented individual, and the militaristic uniform may attract that individual that's more aggressive, looking for, I guess, excitement or something like that. So I think it does directly affect the type of person that is attracted to the work. Does the placement of the weapons on a uniform also, is that also a factor in terms of the appearance and acceptability, public acceptability? Yes, and I have personally observed officers that will wear an external ballistic vest with their weapons attached to the chest. And that produces an immediate oppression, even in me, of intimidation. Instead of carrying a weapon in a standard holster on their hip as a tool, it appears that it can be used as a way of producing intimidation and fear. I mean, at a a very basic level, how does that affect a police officer's ability to conduct his or her work? That has very large effect on their ability. The officer actually creates a more difficult situation for themselves when they're carrying weapons in, in that type of manner or in uniforms that produce fear and intimidation because it immediately creates a defensive reaction in the violator, which will make it much more difficult to just have a simple contact. If we continue to see this trend towards militarization of appearance, but also of weapons, where will this take us into the future? What do you see as the possibilities for this in the future? I really believe that the police uniform will continue to evolve between the traditional uniform and a more safety-oriented uniform. This is going to include things like the outer vest that I mentioned to resemble a duty uniform shirt rather than a military-style protective vest. In my opinion, the, the consequence of not changing to a more traditional uniform is that the police are going to have a more difficult time overcoming obstacles of anxiety and have a continued lack of trust from the community. The uniform influences how people view the police. And if they don't trust us, we can't work effectively. Police are members of their community, and they've been entrusted to serve and protect their citizens, where soldiers are there to conquer nations. We can't let our communities feel like their police are an occupying force. 
So I think the consequence of, of not changing back to the traditional uniform and being mindful how and which weapons are displayed can have extreme consequences in building that trust. Police Chief Patrick Quill from the town of Combs in Texas. And that's Future Tense for another week. We also heard today from Terry Goldsworthy, John Sutton and Jeremiah Mostella. And an interesting curio in closing. It seems another way to rebuild trust in policing is to have your officers patrol public areas on horseback. Research done in the UK suggests that using horses, as retro as that might seem, actually leads to increased levels of goodwill between police officers and greater positive casual engagement. And I suspect in the long run, they might also be much cheaper to run than a fleet of MRAP armoured personnel carriers. Karen Savanovitz is my co-producer here at Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.